Alejandro Soto. And I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 20th. Coming up, we speak with Joe Papalardo about his book, Spaceport Earth. With the successes of SpaceX and Blue Origin, private and commercial spaceflight is a fast-growing business. Papalardo talks with us about this new space industry and the advances and setbacks that have been faced. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A new study from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in Boulder indicates that seemingly innocent products, such as perfumed hand lotion, contribute to air pollution. For more, here's How on Earth's Shelley Schlender. Most people know about ozone alerts, where concerned health officials urge everyone to drive a little less and to postpone mowing the lawn. After all, the volatile organic chemicals released from gasoline do contribute to air pollution. To reduce air pollution even more, how would you feel about postponing a job to paint your house, or using fewer household cleaners, or wearing less perfume? It turns out that things like household cleaners may be contributing as much ozone and small particle air pollution as gasoline engines do. That's according to research published last week from NOAA, Boulder's National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. As for just which household products contribute to this air pollution, here's one of the authors of the new report, NOAA scientist Jessica Gilman. A lot of the products that we're talking about are pretty much anything you could find under your bathroom sink in your kitchen, on shelves that are in your garage. If you imagine walking through some of the big box stores, you have smells that are associated with different aisles, the cleaning products and then personal care. So it's soaps, lotions, shampoos, pesticides, bug spray, even the hand sanitizer. A lot of us use in cold and flu season. It's pretty much everything that we use in our daily lives. And even though We use them in very small quantities, just small dollop or squirt or spray. When all of us are doing this many times throughout the day, those emissions tend to increase. Gilman says that a big reason it's become clear that household products are a problem is the U.S. has done such a good job of lowering the pollution that comes from motor vehicle exhaust. The regulations for clean-burning cars and industry have basically cleared the air for revealing the air pollution that comes from things like perfumed hand lotion. What's more, gasoline is stored in airtight containers such as gas tanks. In contrast, household paints and cleaners are meant to evaporate, and chemically-based perfumes are meant to be smelled. Jessica Gelman says these products release their volatile chemicals so easily, a little bit goes a very long way. Yep. So one of the astonishing facts that we found here is that volatile chemical products are produced to a much smaller quantity. So only 5% of VCPs compared to 95% goes into gasoline and diesel fuel use. So even though it's a much smaller component that we're using, the emissions from the two sources end up being equal, and that's because of how they are used. So if you think of gasoline... It's stored in an airtight container, it's burned for energy, and it's converted mostly to carbon dioxide. But these volatile chemical products are literally uh, designed to evaporate. 
So you think of the time spent waiting for paint, ink, and glue to dry. That time that you're waiting is the evaporation of these volatile chemical products into the atmosphere. Gelman says all this off-gassing does contribute to outdoor air pollution and may be one of the reasons why Denver and the Front Range keep being in violation of national air pollution standards. And as of, I believe, 2007, the Front Range of Colorado has been deemed to be out of um, compliance with the air quality standards set by the EPA, and that air quality standard is for ozone. As for why this pollution is a problem, the American Lung Association reports that small particle air pollution and ozone puts people at risk for early death and illnesses ranging from lung cancer and asthma to heart damage and maladies of the reproductive system. Denver and other front-range cities rank around 10th in the nation for air pollution, such as ozone. By the way, how bad is ozone? The American Lung Association characterizes the effect of ozone in the lungs like the effect of scraping sandpaper on skin, meaning ozone is pretty bad for the lungs. And while ozone alerts generally urge people to stay indoors if they have breathing problems, that may take some rethinking. It turns out indoor concentrations of petroleum-based household products are often 10 times higher indoors than outdoors. Gilman says perfume products are among the contributors to this air pollution. It does seem, just from my personal sort of observations, that fragrance products are much more common than they used to be. So those fragrances don't necessarily have to be listed on the label. There's one catch-all phrase that's called fragrance, and that can contain up to 2,000 different compounds. Just by eliminating fragrances would be um, a way to reduce the emissions. But even fragrance-free products can contain some volatile chemicals. So Gelman says there's more to figure out about how to reduce the air pollution that comes from consumer products. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. There's an invisible war between humans and bacteria, and in recent years the bacteria seem to be winning. Some bacteria have become resistant to the standard antibiotics used by doctors. The rise of these so-called superbugs has led to an increase in global deaths from antibiotic-resistant infections. Scientists have been searching for new strategies for developing antibiotics to these superbugs. In a recent study published in the journal Nature Microbiology, a group of researchers have found a new place to search for antibiotics, the soil beneath our feet. The researchers gathered 2,000 soil samples taken from across the United States. Through a series of experiments intended to study the bacteria found in the soil, they actually discovered a new antibiotic agent that killed several strains of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Using this newly discovered antibiotic, which they call malacidin, the researchers demonstrated that in rats, the malacidin attacked and destroyed the cell walls of antibiotic-resistant bacteria and cleared the rats' infections within a day. Although we are years away from proving that malacidin can help fight bacteria in humans, this new research identifies a new source for finding strong antibiotics. Who knows what other antibiotics will be found in the common soil that is all around us? Why do we sleep? Perchance to dream? Or is there some other reason? That fundamental question has been a point of debate within sleep study science for decades. Sleeping is so essential to our health that people and other animals sicken and die if they are deprived of sleep. In 2003, psychiatrists from the Wisconsin Center for Sleep and Consciousness proposed the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis, or SHI. 
This hypothesis holds that sleep is the price we pay for brains that are plastic and able to keep learning new things. This month, those same researchers published in the journal Science the results of a four-year study, and they presented those results last week at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Electron microscope pictures from inside the brains of mice suggest what happens in our own brain every day. Our synapses, the junctions between nerve cells, grow strong and large during the stimulation of daytime, then shrink while we sleep, creating room for more growth and learning the next day. They found even just a few hours of sleep led to an average decrease in the size of the synapses of about 18%. These changes occurred in both areas of the cerebral cortex and were proportional to the size of the synapses. This emphasizes the importance of getting a good night's sleep to make room for what you will learn tomorrow. Today we are speaking with Joe Papalardo about his book, Spaceport Earth. With the successes of SpaceX and Blue Origin, private and commercial spacecraft is a fast-growing business. Papalardo wrote about this new industry and the advances and setbacks they, that have been faced. Joe Papalardo, welcome to How on Earth. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Great. So, um... A lot of people are, I think, in tune to some of the exciting new stuff that's going on in the space industry, particularly because of the successes and the showmanship of Elon Musk and, and SpaceX recently. Um, but you have taken a slightly different tact at this, and you're looking at not just the spacecraft that are being built and sent up in the air, but also the places that they're being launched from. How did you sort of get onto this idea? It was a slow, dawning realization for me that um, um, all the, you know I was running around chasing launches as a as an editor um, and writer at Popper Mechanics. I was on the staff, and I was at the final shuttle launch and sort of got addicted to rockets and rocket launches and and where the industry was. And there was a big period of transition happening. And what I had realized in following that transition from sort of the the traditional NASA model to this uh, this sort of commercial space effort, um, and to, to really industrialize this um, space flight, um, that it was reaching more than just Cape Canaveral, and it was reaching more than Vandenberg and Wallace, and it wasn't just vertical launch sites. There were space plane dreams that smaller airports were having. There were test stands, um, rocket test stands that were opening up in small towns. Um, it was it, there was a lot more going on than just what you were seeing at these big, you know, premier launch locations. And, and that, that sort of dynamic was very interesting to, to me and, and uh, in the way that it's either changing or, or people are trying to change their local communities, local airports, local um, businesses, um, tax bases, by embracing space. Um, and, then, and as time went on and the, what I call it, so the reinvention of space flight and all these new programs, it was only gaining steam and gaining steam the, the longer I was working on the on the book, and uh, uh, to the point where 
um, by the end, there was almost a, a coast-to-coast sort of effort, um, and more spaceports were popping up that I could cover or applications. It was sort of like whack-a-mole, and I was losing. Well, in, you go over a number of uh, interesting locations, some of them that I think uh, fans of, of space science and, and uh, space exploration know about, but also some that people may not. And there was one in particular I really enjoyed reading a little bit about, which was uh, Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, because it felt like this one really captured both the excitement but also the challenges. So could you explain a little bit what happened with Truth or Consequences, New Mexico? Yeah, I mean, this was the, you know, uh, it, it, it's always tough to be the, the first. And Virgin Galactic and, and the, the local political leadership made a lot of, and we'll, we'll admit they made a lot of mistakes in putting up the spaceport. They wanted to build a facility just for uh, just for space launches, for vertical and horizontal space launches. And they were doing this um, at the behest and, and to attract an anchor tenant, Virgin Galactic, Richard Branson, you know, the X Prize had been won. There was a lot of everyone thought in a couple of years people would be doing these suborbital tourism flights, and maybe he'd be able to make a satellite launcher out of it. It was it was all enthusiasm, and the, the engineering timelines were turned out to be years and years and years and years behind. Um, and what they did, one of the things that they um, they did to entice the spaceport to be built was um, put it you know put it to the voters and the voters in two extremely poor counties, some of the poorest in, in that state, voted to help fund the spaceport for a, a billionaire's company to launch rich people into space. It was almost a, 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 a perfect storm of, of, of negativity um, built around this thing. And as the delays mounted and as people got frustrated, the, um, the attitude towards that spaceport soured. And they're still waiting for a launch. It may come this year. We've heard that before, but there's a lot of testing going on in Mojave. You know, the testing for that doesn't even happen at Spaceport America. It happens at a different spaceport. So they really haven't seen the, the return on investment um, that they're hoping from from Virgin, and they only ha- they didn't have enough anchor tenants to carry the freight so um, and carry the cost. And they're getting more people to do tests there, mostly because it's empty, but nothing is flying from there. And and it's a um, it, it, it turned into a blemish for spaceports everywhere because it became synonymous with corporate welfare, boondoggle, that sort of thing. But that's not the best way to build a spaceport, obviously. And and people did learn from that or trying to do it different ways. Are they trying to do different ways there or they have sort of moved on to other locations? Well, they, well they've learned their lesson there by attracting more tenants, um, for sure. And they have a, you know, a, a great facility. Uh, and it just happens to be in the middle of nowhere. So one of the things that people are realizing is that they that if you're going to launch a space plane or an air-launched rocket, you only really need a long runway in some places to store your oxidizer and your propellant that's away from everything. You have your sort of safety concerns, but you can build a spaceport, get your spaceport license if you've got a, a, a municipal airport with a reasonable size runway. So you've got a, a technical school in Waco, Front Range, right there in Colorado. Um, Oklahoma, you know, um, everywhere where, where they want an industrial park to attract high-end customers and high-tech customers, they go to re- try to get the spaceport. All these places aren't going to be launching um, or having space planes land, but it is a, an attractive thing to have when you are trying to uh, attract a space company to set up 
shop in, in your industrial park or be a tenant at your airport. So there's a lot of reasons why you'd want to get that designation. And that's a smarter approach because you're not putting all your eggs in, in one basket. You're not, put, you're not building something for a company that is working on innovative engineering. It's just not a good idea. However, you also have some stories of successes, and I particularly was fascinated by uh, the story of Wallops. Um, in the uh, space science community, it's well known because they've been launching suborbital rockets there with uh, scientific payloads for a long time. Um, but what even I didn't know is that they've really uh, become a new location for orbital uh, launches, and I mean that in both sense of the word, launching into orbit, but also that Orbital Sciences Corporation, or Orbital ATK, I think it's called now, have actually um, made a strong push uh, to actually launch uh, um, um, commercial payloads from that location. How do, that, how do they make that change, and how do they uh, keep uh, Wallop so vibrant after uh, decades? The, uh, it, the, the launch that put Wallops on the on the radar for me it was really the the a moonshot, which is the the Laddie launch, um, where they um, they, they investigated um, the the moon, um, and that was amazing to, to see from a spaceport I hadn't even really really heard of to watch a moonshot. So that was a, an eye opener. And um, back then, there was a lot of pride in, in what they were doing. The state and the state leadership has put a lot of effort into building up the spaceport and, and the launch pad, and what they. Um, what really did it was the commercial crew program, like, which I always try to point out is, um, and I'm happy about this, is, is a pretty bipartisan, and for all the, 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 the arguing um, about it, it was hatched in the uh, W. Bush administration, um, was retained in the Obama administration, and the Trump administration is embracing it as well. So during that, that, all that time, Orbital um, got a, a contract to deliver cargo to the International Space Station, and that was a pivotal moment. It really gave them a mission. If you don't have a mission, your spaceport is lacking, right? And and that it was a, a keynote mission that, that repeats. You know, you have to keep doing it and gave this company something to hang their, their hat on, gave the spaceport something to hang their hat on. So that was really the, the pivotal moment was winning that contract and proving that out. Now, when they blew up their launch pad, that was less uh, less uh, fun. But the political leadership really rallied and kind of shook NASA down for money to rebuild the spaceport, even though the insurance was um, pretty clear that the, the Inspector General NASA was pretty clear that they saw the insurance were, was supposed to cover that, and that it was a spaceport's problem, not NASA's. And NASA paid anyway. So, um, so the political leadership rallied and, and kept it on track. Um, and got it back up and running. So it's a it's a it's a good news story in that it's a nice to have another flight facility and uh, and it's great to have another vertical launch pad. But it also sort of shows that the politics play a very big role uh, in this. And even in commercial space flight, government is a huge customer, especially back then when things were getting started. Those commercial uh, customers weren't really there, but the government was, and that's. Um, that's kind of how SpaceX got started, but now their commercial roster is filled with satellite launches from all over the world. So it's a nice transition there as well to see that, that the commercial side is as vibrant as the, the government side. And as satellites get smaller and launch vehicles get smaller, more places, more airports, more launch vehicles will be out there, and this sort of this space flight is going to spread to more places, and not all, but... Some of those spaceports are really going to see things taking off and, and landing there in spacecraft. It's a very cool thing to think about. 
So this, this is a nice segue for uh, us on How on Earth, because we're interested in science. And um, that, that lunar moonshot launch that you mentioned, that Wallops, which is in Virginia, actually was carrying an uh, instrument built here at the University of Colorado Boulder, uh, the Lunar Dust uh, Explorer, that part of that LADEE mission. And so, you know, even I was surprised. I've known about LDX or Lunar Dust Explorer for a long time. Didn't know it was launched out of Virginia at Wallops. Um, do you see that beyond just uh, commercial flights, there's also opportunities here in this new space industry uh, for uh, scientific exploration? Absolutely. And, and saying that is a lot easier after launching SpaceX um, and their successful um, Falcon Heavy launch, because that's a deep space. Um, that, that's a heavy lifter to get something in deep space. If you, here's how I break it down. If you take the ride, building the ride away from, from NASA and, and focus all that money and attention on to the scientific payloads, you've got a, you've got a winning combination. And if you look at what Falcon Heavy did and it's, you know, you know, 20% of what the cost of its nearest competitor is currently, um, and you can launch into deep space for 150 million. That's good for space science. <laughs> that's very good for space science. And and you compare that with what's happening with SLS, with the one billion dollar price tag per launch, um, if it ever does launch. And, and that's what everyone's pegging their interplanetary science dreams on. I, I like the fact there's a commercial alternative out there that's a lot cheaper. I like that all that money savings hopefully will go into interplanetary exploration, into into more rovers, into you can afford. Europa Clipper, you know, so just flying around, you could land. You know, all these things get enabled by cheaper launches. That's the part that costs so much money, that first step off the planet. So it's, um, you know, to, so to me, getting the ride away from NASA and giving it to somebody else to, to handle. And um, and the ripple effect of that is not just SpaceX. Now, there's new launch vehicles being put on the market in a couple of years um, that, are, that are coming online that are now competing against that price point. So... The entire industry, and globally that's true too, is reacting to this. Um, and to me that's extremely positive too. So it's not another monopoly situation where it's going to get dependent on SpaceX to launch. No, we're going to, they'll be competing with all these other companies that have new launch hardware coming online. So it's a nice trend to see developing in this, you know, you know, stagnant industry. And a lot of that credit really does belong to Elon Musk. I mean, he, he is a showman, but he delivers things to, to the space station, he delivers stuff to deep space, and and his hardware, you know, his hardware works. Um, um, except when it doesn't, but but even that is part of the engineering process to me. Well, and that is part of the excitement for deep space exploration. But you also talk about another type of uh, potential exploration, particularly for scientific instruments, uh, that I think is really fascinating. That doesn't look like what people expect, which is stratospheric balloons. What is going on there, and, and where is that taking place? Oh, the, the stratolites are uh, very interesting to me as well. The um, so Worldview is a company in Tucson, Arizona, that has created um, a a on um, the airport there a circular balloon launch pad where they go to the edge of space and balloons and, and the you know for for tourism it's a it's a lot easier than thinking about strapping to a rocket you can get in there and you know a t-shirt and jeans and have a nice drink go up look at the curvature of the earth and come back down but for for science it's extremely attractive because it's it's it's, it's proven they haven't launched people that they've 
they've made a lot of money launching scientific instruments for um, for everybody, universities, governments, whoever needs it. And there's a lot of demand for that. Um, it's it's a satellite. It operates as a satellite, although it's not in space. It's not in low Earth orbit, but it's up there. So you can beam signals back and forth. You can test um, equipment that's made to go to space. You can do a lot of Earth observations as for a, a fraction of the cost. So it's a great, it's a great alternative, um, and it's transportable. You can, you know, you, you can bring the balloons elsewhere. Um, so it really, uh, it really opens up a lot of doors. And the people who are doing this are NASA veterans, um, you know, sort of space royalty in a lot of ways, astronauts and biosphere um, um, alumni and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a, it's a well-funded, well-organized group of people doing it. And they're make, and they are making money, and uh, and only uh, it's only going to I think it's only going to grow as they prove that concept out. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of exciting things going on in the space industry at all levels, from the deep space flights of uh, the SpaceX rockets to uh, stratospheric satellites or stratolites uh, lofted by balloons. Uh, if people are looking to learn more about this, uh, Joe Papalotto has written a book called Spaceport Earth that talks about a lot of the great and exciting things that are going on and all the also the challenges and how they overcome them. Uh, Joe Papalotto, thank you for being on How on Earth today. Thank you, thank you. Watch in the sky. Thank you. That was Joe Papalardo, uh, author of a recent book, Spaceport Earth. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by Alejandro Soto and engineered by me, Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Buena Vista Social Club. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 303- 447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Alejandro Soto. And I'm Joel Parker.